want to ask you a question. It's quite personal. I wonder how good you are at withstanding temptation. Now, before I ask, before I go any further, I'm not talking about not eating chocolate during Lent, okay? I'm rather talking about withstanding the attempts of Satan to lure us away from doing God's will, from what honours and pleases him. I wonder how strong and courageous you are. I guess if we're honest, most of us would say that we've got moments when we're actually quite successful at that and moments when we really are pretty utter failures. I want to ask you uh, another question. Let me ask you uh, how courageous you are at living for God, doing his will, when it involves suffering, when walking the path of God, when following Christ will bring you pain and suffering. Let me give you a couple of examples. How about when you uh, leave here tonight, when you perhaps meet up with some friends and they start blaspheming Jesus, speaking ill of him. Maybe it'll happen at school tomorrow. Maybe it'll happen at university tomorrow. Will we be godly? Will we speak up for Jesus? Will we risk losing those so-called friends? It's a big issue, isn't it? Likewise, uh, when friends of ours go drinking, taking drugs, perhaps uh, having casual sex, do we go with the flow? Or do we stand up for Jesus and refuse and risk being laughed at or perhaps left on the, the fringes of the group we once called our friends? If you work, how willing are you to stand up against ungodly business practices? Are you willing to stand firm for Jesus, even though it may cost you your job, or indeed perhaps cost you the uh, promotion prospects that you once thought you had? We all know such circumstances will come up. But how courageous are we? How courageous will you be? I suspect if we're honest again, our success rate or our godliness rating plummets, doesn't it, in such circumstances? Because we're often going to take the easy way out. Just in order to avoid paying the cost. Just to avoid suffering for belonging to Jesus. I raise these things not because I want to beat you up, not because I want you to beat yourselves up. But so that we can see why we need to take our passage tonight so seriously. Because it reveals how we can face times of suffering and we can face them with confidence. How we can be create, uh, courageous even when we come into Satan's line of fire. I don't know if you've uh, been following the news this week, but there's been a lot in the news about the Chilcot Inquiry, the inquiry into the uh, war in, uh, in Iraq and the equipment of our armed forces and I just want to read to you a couple of sentences from one of the leading articles of the Times this Thursday, 4th of March. It was titled, Unfinest Hour. Many British deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan were not inevitable. They were not caused by the magnitude of the challenge, the ingenuity of the enemy, or human error on the part of our armed forces. They were sacrificed unnecessarily 
owing to wholly inadequate equipment. The article makes the point that if we're going to ask our armed forces to go in the line of fire to do their job, they need to be properly equipped and prepared. And the same, of course, is true for us as Christians. If we are going to fly the flag for Christ, if we are going to walk into Satan's line of fire and temptation, if we are going to fight that effectively, we need to be properly equipped, don't we? We can only fight courageously and victoriously when we're equipped. And that's the great news of our passage tonight, that Jesus reveals how that can happen, how we can fly the flag for Christ courageously. Let me just set the scene for our passage tonight. If you've not been here on Sunday evenings, uh, you won't know that we're looking our way through at chapter 22. It's a series called The World's Last Hour, the hour in which darkness is allowed by God to reign. Just look over the page, on the right-hand page, to uh, verse 53 of this chapter. Jesus says, This is your hour, the world's hour, when darkness reigns. It's the hour or the time when Jesus, the Son of God, is betrayed and is murdered on a cross outside Jerusalem. It's the hour that Jesus knows is coming. Indeed, he's spoken of it in the, in the meal he's just spent with his closest followers, the meal that was recorded in the verses before our passage tonight. Just look across to the left-hand column of the left-hand page to verses 19 and 20. Jesus says this. He takes a cup and he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He speaks of his blood poured out. Moments earlier, he spoke, verse 19, of his body given for you. And then he speaks, verse 21, of being betrayed. Again, verse 22, of being betrayed. You see, as he's gone through this meal, he's alerted his disciples to what lies ahead for him and also for them. He's alerted them to the challenges that they're going to face in following him, the temptations, even of his closest follower, Peter, verse 31, to deny him. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So you see, uh, Jesus has revealed the reality of what lies behind the events as they're unfolding. You see, it's as if Jesus has gone and sort of just pulled back the curtains of heaven to reveal the master plan, to reveal what is really going on in those days in Jerusalem. So he says those words, verse 31, Look, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. On the one hand, you see, we have God's master plan of Jesus going through to the cross to die, verse 22, as decreed. And again, verse 37, as it is written, he'll be numbered with the transgressors. Everything is going to be fulfilled on the one hand of God's master plan. And yet, on the other hand, we have Satan's work trying to disrupt that master plan that God has set by tempting God's people and his son to reject him, to reject his will for an easier path. 
And so over the next three nights uh, on uh, Sunday evenings, we're going to see how events sort of just play out. Tonight we begin with what happens immediately afterwards as Jesus and his disciples leave the upper room and Jesus himself becomes the focus of Satan's temptations. Verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples follow him. And then as they reach that place, verse 40, Jesus says to them, pray. Why? So that you won't enter into temptation, so you won't fall into temptation. Now you see is the time when Satan's hour begins, when darkness begins its reign. And he wants his disciples to be ready for whatever Satan is going to throw at them. And yet, you see, as as events unfold tonight, at least, we see that Jesus is the object of Satan's plans and schemes. And as that happens, let's note uh, three things, and you can find them on the uh, sheet that uh, I hope you've got in your uh, packs as you came in. And the first point there is suffering, the prospect that agonises. Up till now, uh, Jesus has appeared almost clinical, hasn't he? as he's spoken of his death. I mean, which one of us here tonight would uh, invite your best friends round for a meal, go out somewhere special, and then as you spend the evening with them, just begin to drop into conversation the fact that you're going to die, and that what you're sort of enacting in the meal is to remind you that your body was broken and your blood was shed for them. And to do all of that without even batting an eyelid be a bit like uh, David Cameron or Gordon Brown having one of their sort of pre-election war councils, getting everybody in around the table over dinner and saying, look, guys, uh, we're going to lose. We're going to lose because, uh, well, I'm not going to come out uh, hot in the polls. In fact, I'm going to come out rock bottom. And you know what? Well, the party's going to be split in two as well. And imagine them saying that with no hint of emotion at all. They couldn't and they wouldn't. And yet up to now, that's what it seems Jesus has been doing. But then, on that Mount of Olives, at verse 41, Jesus removes himself from his disciples. He wants some time in private. Perhaps he doesn't want to see what he's going to experience And verse 41, he withdraws about a stone's throw beyond them into the night and he kneels down and he prays. It's obvious, isn't it, that Jesus begins to feel the full weight of what lies ahead for him. Just listen how he prays. Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, in his prayer, Jesus reveals the prospect that agonizes him, quite literally. And it's the prospect of suffering. But it's not suffering because he's going to die on a cross. Even though the cross was one of the most agonizing means of killing somebody. In fact, in, I think it was the 3rd or 4th century, the Romans actually outlawed it because it was so inhumane. No, Jesus' agony isn't at the prospect of dying on a cross but it's at the prospect of the cup. This is the real suffering that Jesus fears. But what is that cup? 
Well, Jesus deliberately uses a word that is uh, pregnant with Old Testament meaning. We had uh, some words from Jeremiah read before our reading tonight, just to help us to understand it. Those words tell us that it's none other than God's righteous anger, justly delivered on sinners. And it's what sinners have to face, the cup that sinners have to drink because of their sin. Just let me uh, read to you, you may want to turn back to it, uh, Jeremiah 25, page 785. Page 785 and verse 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Jeremiah. Take from my hand this cup, filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. And then note just on the right-hand side there, verse 28, no one can refuse to drink the cup. But if they refuse to drink or to take the cup from your hand or drink it, tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, you must drink it. See, I'm beginning to bring disaster on the city that bears my name. And will you indeed go unpunished? You will not go unpunished. Sin will be punished. That is what the cup of God's wrath is about. So you may ask, why, why on earth should Jesus be drinking the cup of God's wrath? He was God's son. He'd lived a sinless life. He'd committed no sin. He'd always walked perfectly in the steps that his father had laid out before him. He'd always done his father's will. And now that will was for him to drink that cup. Not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world. Do you remember those words we looked at just now? Verse 19. This is my body given for you. Verse 20. This is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. See, this is why Jesus was in agony. He knew that he would take himself to the cross to bear the sins of the world. That he would become sin for us. That he would bear the world's imputed sin. The world's sin laid on Jesus. And that Jesus would then face his father's wrath for it. That was what was agonizing Jesus. That was the suffering that he was reduced, later on we'll see, to tears, to sweat. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn first off, don't we, that uh, walking, walking in God's way may well involve suffering. It did for Jesus, and it will certainly do for those who follow him. It's not an optional extra. Let me just read to you some words from uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Why? To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted him to him himself, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Do you see that? Jesus walking to the cross, facing that pain, he did so for us and as an example for us. Suffering for being a a Christian, for being a follower of Jesus, is not an optional extra. It's the mark, indeed, of a genuine believer. And if we aren't suffering for Jesus, well, it may well be, it may well be that we aren't actually living for him after all. It may well be that we are kidding ourselves that we believe in him, that we are living for him. Now, please don't get me wrong. If we are Christians here tonight, uh, we will never have to go through what Jesus did. We will never have to face the prospect of God's wrath because Jesus has done it for us. And we have been ransomed in and through faith in him. We must be hugely thankful for that, mustn't we? He endured in Gethsemane and beyond at Calvary what we should endure. And indeed his suffering that he goes through now and again at Calvary is far greater suffering than you and I can ever imagine or will ever have to face. That's not to say that people here tonight aren't suffering for being Christians. It's not to minimise the fact that you may already be going through huge things for being a Christian, ostracised by your family, ostracised by your friends, ostracised by your community, even losing your job. But you know, at least we don't have to face hell, do we? And if we do face suffering, let's remember that we have a Saviour who has walked that path before us. He can understand, he will understand, and he will help us to go there. If, however, tonight you're not someone who would call yourself a Christian, please see the suffering that awaits sinners. See the agony that Jesus was in here in Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. See the sinfulness of your sin, where your sin will take you if you have not come to Christ before you die. If you have not asked him to bear your sins for you, you will bear them yourself. And what Jeremiah was speaking about will be something that you will look forward to. Please, I beg of you tonight, if that is you, see the ultimate suffering that lies ahead of you. You may not feel it now, but you will one day feel the full wrath of God upon you. So why not now? Before it's too late, reach out in faith to Jesus. Remember, you have a choice, don't you? We can bear our sins ourselves, or we can have Jesus bear them in and through faith in him. The cup must be drunk. Jesus knew that. That was why he was in agony on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane.
It must be drunk by Jesus or by you. Now let's just be honest with one another for a moment. Uh, Suffering isn't a good prospect, is it? If I was going to ask you to put your hands up, those of us who enjoy suffering, I suspect there'd be maybe, well, none of us, would we? None of us will put up our hands and say we enjoy suffering. None of us enjoy going to the dentist, do we? That's suffering. So suffering doesn't appeal. So let's note, secondly, uh, the temptation. Temptation, the alternative that often appeals. You see, as Jesus and his disciples leave that upper room, temptation is in Jesus' uppermost mind. He knows that Satan is subtly working away to entice him and his disciples to walk away from doing what God wants. And so, he says to his disciples, verse 40, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Then, verse 41, he himself withdraws from them and prays. And verse 42, we see him wrestling with the temptation. My will or my Father's will. The temptation to avoid the cup of suffering and to go another way without suffering. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. He fears it. He is in agony on account of facing it. He hopes there will be another way. And then later on, after he's finished praying, he goes to his disciples and he urges them to pray again. He says, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that so that you will not enter into temptation. Do you see Satan's ploy here? He offers a very appealing alternative. It looks okay, it almost sounds okay, but it is far from okay. And of course, that's been exactly the way Satan has worked since the beginning of time. In Genesis, with Adam and Eve. So tempting. God didn't say that. This won't happen. Go on, do it. It won't matter. Of course, Job, the tempting. Tempting to deny his faith in God. And of course, Jesus himself, at the beginning of his own earthly ministry, tempted and tested to see if he would go God's way, his Father's way. And now he comes to give Jesus a very attractive alternative to doing his Father's will. And Jesus acknowledges it, doesn't he? He says it's either drinking the cup, that's going his Father's way, or having the cup taken away from him, going his own way. The alternative sounds very tempting, doesn't it? Especially if you know what suffering is involved, and Jesus does. And I think, I think this is where you and I so often fail, isn't it? We look ahead, let's be honest, we look ahead and we see, well, if that's going to involve suffering, I'm going to go a different way. We immediately turn around and we go an opposite way, up another track. We think up some alternative, more attractive route to take, don't we? And yet that's often the way that Satan wants us to go. It's almost a natural reaction, isn't it? To avoid suffering. Many people don't go to the dentist in order to avoid suffering. And it's easy, isn't it, to have our minds clouded by the prospect of suffering, to think that God can't have suffering in mind for us, when in fact he does, when in fact actually he knows that's in his perfect plan for us. He doesn't delight in us suffering, but he knows that that is the right way to go, that that is the best way to go, and he may have good reasons for us that we will never in this life 
know and understand. But you know what Jesus did? He knew what lay ahead and he knew that obedience was the only option, that there was no valid alternative either for the sake of God's glory or indeed for the sake of you and me for our eternal destiny. And so Jesus says simply, yet not my will but yours. He saw Satan coming and he stood firm. But here though is is our problem. Here is our problem. We all too readily are not ready for temptation. We aren't switched on to seeing Satan coming for us, are we? I guess most of us here tonight have got smoke detectors in our houses or flats. You've got smoke detectors in your places where you live? Yeah. Most of us have got smoke detectors, but most of us probably don't go and check out that they're still working, do we? Most of us don't change the battery. Most of us don't check that actually they're still going to alert us to the fact that there may be a fire so that we can get out and be saved. We become complacent, don't we? We just expect it's going to do its work for us. And I think we're the same with Satan, aren't we? We just expect that when Satan pitches up to tempt us, we're going to be ready and waiting, that we'll see him coming a mile off. But the truth is we won't. We won't. Jesus did, but we won't. And his disciples certainly didn't. You know, we need to be out and ready and waiting because Satan is always around there. He's not some sort of person mocked up in a red suit with horns and a big tail. No, he is a roaring lion. That's what Peter says, walking around, looking for people to eat, looking for people to devour. So you see, whilst we can't avoid temptation, we can certainly look out and we can see it coming. We can avoid falling into it by seeing that it's on the horizon. But let me just give you two reasons why we do fall into sin. One is complacency. We've already seen that. But the other, the other, is because we forget the sinfulness of sin. And so we see what Satan tempts us with as being very appealing, as being an alternative option, rather than instead an open door through which we walk to sin and to hell. That's what Satan's temptations are. Just open doors to walk through to sin and of course sin leads us to hell. That's what Jesus went to the cross for. So we need not go there. Two reasons then why we fall into sin. Complacency and we forget the sinfulness of sin. So Jesus here chooses to walk his father's path But what was it, what was it that enabled him to do that? Well, let's note thirdly and finally, prayer. The response that strengthens, just over on the final page, very briefly. The short answer to how Jesus faces Satan and stands up to him is prayer. We've seen it throughout this series of events. Temptation and prayer go hand in hand. Jesus says, pray so that you aren't tempted. Pray so that you aren't tempted. And he himself prays as he is tempted. And he comes through it. He begs, doesn't he? Verse 42. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He prays for wisdom to see things as they truly are. 
to see God's will for it and to be able to resolve to do that and to walk his way. He wants to see his father's preferred option and to make sure that he bins Satan's appealing alternative. If we're honest, often our pattern is to look at the option that we most prefer, isn't it? If you have two options, what are we going to choose? We're going to choose the option that we prefer. Rather than asking, as we should do, what is going to glorify God most? What is going to be in line with God's will and what is going to bring him most glory? That is what Jesus does here. Jesus prays and he responds. And look what happens. Quick as a flash, verse 43. Jesus prays and then an angel from heaven appears and strengthens Jesus. Jesus' prayer is answered. But not the way that you or I might expect it to be answered. I don't know about you, but often when I face a situation which I don't want to go through, when I see suffering on the horizon, I say, Lord, take this away from me. And I expect him to take it away from me. And I suspect we all do the same, don't we? But Jesus prays, and what happens? God strengthens him so that he can face what is ahead and endure it. Now let's be clear here. Uh, This response by God shows us, doesn't it, that it's not the act of prayer that strengthens. It's not the act of prayer, but it's the one to whom Jesus prays that brings the strength. It's God who strengthens us. It's not what we do, it's what God does in response to our prayers. But the surprise is, verse 44, that uh, Jesus doesn't have it all taken away. He's strengthened, but he continues to be in anguish. You see, prayer isn't a ticket to a trouble-free life. Jesus continues to be in agony as he goes through and as he faces everything that lies ahead. But he is strengthened to go forward, to put one step in front of the other. God is the one who walks with him. His Father strengthens him for what lies ahead. You see, the lesson here is to pray, to pray, and to pray again. And just in case we want to have an example of what happens when we don't pray, look down at verses 45 and 46. When Jesus rises from his own prayer and goes back to his disciples, what does he find? He finds them asleep and exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Do you see? And of course, as we look ahead to next week and the week after, that's exactly what's going to happen. They are going to fall into temptation time and time again. And they will fall. And they will fail. I think in our self-sufficient world, we far too often forget to pray, don't we? We phone a friend. We email someone. We chat to our small group. We hop around and see a neighbour. We maybe even make an appointment with the vicar. We do everything but pray. But these verses show us that if we want comfort and strength, then we must go to none other than the throne of grace. You see, God must be our first means of relief and help. The first friend we turn to must be Jesus. It was so helpful tonight uh, when Bill turned us or prayed to us and prayed to God for us through Hebrews chapter 4. He said uh, some words, and I'm just going to pick up a verse before it. Chapter 4, verse 15. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's go to the throne of grace, folks. That's our first stop, our second stop, and our third stop when we face suffering. I want to uh, close by uh, reading you some words from uh, Killing Fields, Living Fields. I don't know if you've read it. It's the story of uh, the church and Christians in Cambodia. And this is the story, the last moments of uh, one of the Christians' lives. Pastor Yan had been going about his duties as head of the district church committee when he was surrounded one afternoon by a bunch of angry Isarak rebels. They pushed him off his bicycle and began taunting him. It's one of Puk Yezu. Why don't you ask your precious Jesus to help you now? They scoffed as they pushed him over into a freshly dug hole. Showing no fear, he replied, Do what you have to do, but first allow me to pray. He knelt down beside the open grave, his face radiant with the joy of Christ, as he called out, Lord Jesus, be with me in this moment. Then one of the rebels struck him on the back of the head with a cudgel. The pastor fell headlong into the grave where he lay quite still. The attitude of prayer and the indescribable expression of sublime peace and joy in his face remained. As his murderers filled the earth into the hole, that death-defying expression was indelibly imprinted on their minds, haunting and troubling and prompting them to speak of it to others. How important it is that you and I learn the lesson of the Mount of Olives, that we learn to pray, that we keep our radars out and working for Satan and his tempting. We have huge opportunities here as individuals and as a church to witness to Jesus, not just over this next uh, month, but even tomorrow. Yes, we've got Passion for Life and Easter, but even tomorrow we will have opportunities. And the devil will be trying to stop you and I, trying to stop God's plan of rescuing other people from going to hell. How vital it is that we pray for this revisiting program that's happening this week, for the opportunities on people's doorsteps. How vital it is to pray for the courage to take the opportunity to speak about Jesus tomorrow, to invite someone to an event, to pray that people who do speak for Jesus will speak with great courage in his strength through the Holy Spirit. We often think mission is impossible, but these verses tell us that mission is possible because of who our God is and the strength that he gives us. And if perchance tonight you're someone who's yet to believe in Jesus and put your trust in him, please don't believe Satan's lies. Don't believe that he's, what he's saying to you, that you don't need to do this. You don't need to believe in Jesus. You can take your time. You can forget it. Those are all attractive alternatives, aren't they, to doing what you most need to do, which is to turn from your sin, to turn in faith to Jesus, the one who has indeed rescued us from our sin. He endured hell 
so we need not. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we've heard these words tonight, we know in our heart of hearts that we are weak and feeble. Either weak and feeble followers of you, or weak and feeble in our resistance to you. Please, we pray. Please, we pray. Give us the strength to live as your people the courage to speak out for you, the courage to do your will. Father, you know the things that we worry about, the situations that we'll encounter tonight, tomorrow, this week. And we pray that you would give us confidence and strength to speak for you where we have in the past been silent. We pray that too that we would be those who pray for one another and encourage one another to be strong, to hold fast, and not to yield. For we ask all these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.